1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, commencing at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Uh, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the world, worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring, uh, not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and great wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Thank you, Andrew. Can you hear me okay? Have you ever tried to replicate something done by an expert? Perhaps you watched a cooking show and saw a skilled chef create a masterpiece. And then when you tried to replicate it, even with their recipe, it didn't look quite as good as what they'd created. And you suspect maybe it doesn't taste quite the way theirs tasted. 
Perhaps you've watched a YouTube video where some very skilled craftsman put together a beautifully built item, but then your efforts in, in your garage really didn't come up looking quite as professional. Expertise is something to behold. We see the end result of years of practice and training combined with a little bit of natural talent. And the result is that we quickly realize, I can't do that. Today, as we study God's word together, we are going to see a man who was an expert par excellence who had every reason to let that expertise shine forth, but he doesn't do it. He instead deliberately lays aside that excellence to serve a higher goal. Now, we've already had the passage read for us, but just so you're aware, I'm going to be focusing just on those last five verses, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, and let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, as we come today to study your word, I pray that our hearts would be open, that our minds would be focused, that we would look into your holy word and we would desire to be changed, that we would desire to be challenged and grown because we love you. And we are grateful for our salvation. Lord, as I speak, I pray that you would help me to articulate clearly what your word says. May there be none of me and all of you in this text. May everything that's done here this morning seek to glorify Christ and not the preacher. And would you speak through me by your spirit as you have already spoken to me in my preparation. And may you perform your transforming work in our hearts by the power of your scripture. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Today, as we study this text, the main idea that we need to grasp is this. God does not save people according to the wisdom and eloquence of the preacher. He makes them alive spiritually through the preaching of, of Christ crucified. Let's look at verse 1. I'll read it again for you. Paul writes, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, the first thing we notice here is Paul refers to his readers as brothers. The recipients of this letter were themselves converted under the preaching of Paul or under the preaching of those converted by the preaching of Paul. These are his spiritual children and his spiritual grandchildren. And he prompts them to recall what he was like when he came to them at first. He says he did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom Why does he need to remind them of that? 
Well, if we were to skip back to chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, we see that there was conflict occurring with various groups inside of the church, fighting over which leader they followed, which preacher they loved. Some say, I followed Paul, I followed Peter, I follow Apollos, I follow Christ. Some of this conflict focused on the impressive credentials of that spiritual leader. Paul here reminds them that it was under his preaching that they were converted. But not because he was the most impressive preacher that they'd heard. Now, was Paul an impressive preacher? The evidence seems to suggest he was a fantastic preacher. Look at his speeches in the book of Acts in front of the crowds, in front of governmental leaders, and even before kings and rulers. He had a command of multiple languages. He was a highly trained Pharisee and a Roman citizen. Additionally, if he preached in any way similar to the way he wrote, He was probably a fairly compelling guy to listen to. And yet Paul doesn't point to his compelling speech as the source of the Corinthians' salvation. Instead, we'll see it in the next couple of verses. Paul kept it very simple and he proclaimed a simple gospel. He says, verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says that he avoided all the showy speech and the clever rhetoric of the Corinthian elite. And instead, he proclaimed a simple gospel, the message of Christ crucified. Chapter 1, verse 23 that we read before tells us that his audience saw this as a foolish message. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly, foolishness to Gentiles. To the Jews, a crucified Messiah was not going to help them in their struggles against the Roman overlords. So the Gentiles, they'd have no problem adding him as yet another God to their Roman pantheon. A God who could die was kind of a silly one to add in. What sort of God would that be? It was all very unimpressive. But as Paul writes back in verse 18, for the word of the cross is Folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul was not interested in being just another clever preacher, another rhetorician, or a sophist, those are clever thinkers, amongst the elite speakers of Corinth. His goal was not to become an entertaining public speaker. He didn't come to town as they did speaking to build himself up and to create a following that he might receive accolades and prestige. He wasn't interested in showcasing himself, but rather, he says, he decided that it was a deliberate choice to forsake those techniques that would have gained him a group of followers. Instead, he the testimony of God was sufficient on its own. It needed no flourishes and flair to dress it up. And neither did Paul want to create a distraction from the message, causing people instead to be drawn to himself. The message of the cross is a message of humility, not a message of ego. 
It is a message that says, I am a sinner and therefore I needed a rescuer. I need someone who will draw me up from the despicable state that I live in and set me free. You can see how this message would not be lauded by Paul's audience. A a city full of wealthy cultural elites, a city where most were legally free, which was unusual in the Roman system, and in high standing with Roman rulers. If you wanted to be praised for your speech there, you needed to be affirming and celebrate the beauty, the wealth, the privilege, and the freedom of your hearers. To come in and tell them that they are lost, broken, spiritually bankrupt, and enslaved to sin was not going to sell many tickets to your speeches. You would win very few friends with a message like that. But that, my dear friends, is the gospel. The message of Christ crucified that Paul preached. And isn't this also the message for our culture? Here in Australia, we love to proclaim that we are the best country on earth. We take a walk through our cities and especially through the universities and listen to the people. Our culture proclaims how forward thinking we are. If you want to be praised by our culture, go stand in the public square and preach about climate change, LGBT rights, abortion freedoms, socialized ideas, and you will be praised by the people. You will get an audience that will cheer you on. Stand in that same square and warn people that they are living in rebellion against their creator, that they are destined for condemnation, and they'll not be very impressed. Tell them that they are sinners and that God is angry. They won't applaud you, but rather they'll want to shut you up. Plead with them that they need to flee to the merciful Savior to escape judgment, and they'll call you narrow-minded and hate-filled. It is a message that is foolishness to our culture, and yet it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Verse 3, Paul says, And I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. Was Paul weak? Well, he may have been. There is good evidence to say that he was physically weak and maybe unimpressive. Uh, There's good evidence in Scripture to suggest that he was persistently plagued by some bodily illness. And if church history is anything to be believed, he was not a physically impressive man to start with. In fact, he may have been relatively short with a balding head, fairly ugly face, and then he got sick. I'm not sure, though, he is speaking of physical weakness so much as being timid and mild in his demeanour. He uses weakness here as a contrast to the powerful, strong, dominating speech of the rhetoricians and sophists of Corinth. Rather than coming across as personally strong, He was gentle and humble with his hearers. He wanted them to be impressed by the subject of his speech, not the delivery. He says he was with them in fear and much trembling. Why did he fear? Did he fear the people? If you study Paul, he doesn't really strike you as someone who's all that scared of people and their responses. We see elsewhere that he was a bold preacher of the truth, willing to risk death. Suffering, happy to be imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. 
When he felt called by God, he was more than willing to head straight into danger for the sake of obedience to Christ to proclaim the gospel. I don't think Paul was afraid of the Corinthians. In Paul's writing, the phrase fear and trembling seems not to be a fear of people, but a deep concern that the gospel might take root. Paul's fear was not for his own safety or reputation, but that the Corinthians would hear the gospel and be saved. Rather than making himself impressive and tempting the hearers to follow him, Paul took a deeply humble attitude and chose to lay aside his strengths for the sake of the gospel message which he preached. He came to the Corinthians deliberately weak, humble, meek, mild, that he may allow the message to stand strong on its own so that no one could say that they are following Christ because of how impressive Paul was. In our age of public platforms and TED Talks, there are many who command a strong following. Just look at the people whose voices are guiding our society and steering the direction of our culture. It's not usually that much because of their content. It's often more to do with their personal presence or the emotive languages and arguments used in their presentation. Whether it's a lecture or a tweet, our our culture is trained to follow statements that impress us. Look inside churches. The names that sadly often draw the biggest following are those people who by their prestige have drawn people or who have laboured long and hard to develop their presentation skills that people might follow them. The lack of content or the biblically false content just slides on through, hidden beneath the veneer of outward appearance and flourishes. Is that how we ought to preach the gospel to people? Should we seek to wow people into the kingdom? Is that what Paul says ought to dominate our message? No. Paul says he laid all of that aside, allowed himself to appear weak, and then preached Christ crucified. He got himself out of the way so that no one would be confused that they were of Paul rather than of Christ. Paul doesn't want to be the hero of the message. He wants Jesus to be the hero of the message. Paul was willing to step aside and be a nobody so that people heard and understood the message of the gospel. Some of us, I suspect, do not suffer the problem of Paul. We are not powerful speakers. We're not rhetorically trained. We're not of impressive appearance. There's nothing in us that will naturally cause people to follow us. There is far less for us to lay aside to preach Christ and him crucified. But that is not to say that we cannot obstruct the message in other ways. But there is some advantage in that sense for being of little social prominence in that you do have less to lay aside to preach the gospel. Some of us are more upfront. Some of us do have training in theology, philosophy, public speaking, debating, apologetics. It can appear to make us more naturally capable in the context of evangelism. But let me assure you, it can also be our greatest weakness. We might mistakenly think that God needs us to be personally impressive to win people to Christ, and so we alter our behaviour accordingly. 
We're more likely to think that when someone responds positively to the message, that it was something to do with us. And so we become puffed up. Scarily. We may not have actually won them to Jesus at all, but to us as the preacher. Paul took a humble attitude and so must we. Verse 4. He says, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Paul again highlights that his message was not built upon the worldly wisdom of the Corinthian culture with its persuasive rhetoric and its fine speech. But he says it was based on demonstration of the spirit and of power. What's he speaking of here? Now, some have taken this to mean that Paul was working miracles alongside his preaching. Did God work miracles through Paul? Well, yeah, he did. Many times. In fact, he even raised Eutychus from the dead in Acts chapter 20. Is that what he's talking about here? I would argue that the context seems to tell us the exact opposite. In chapter 1, verse 22, he noted that Jews demand signs. But he noted instead he gave them the preaching of Christ crucified and they were stumbled by this. Likewise, in our passage here, Paul seems to be going out of his way not to draw attention to himself, but surely signs and wonders would have done exactly that. More likely, Paul is stating that the proof of the message was not in the brilliance of his words and the presentation, but in the effect of that the words created in his hearers. What power had accompanied Paul's preaching in Corinth? Can I suggest to you that the most supernatural thing in this world is that spiritually dead people are made spiritually alive? Spiritually dead people. Men and women, that's how the Bible describes all people in Ephesians chapter 2. Says in verse 4, were made alive in Christ. At what point were they made alive? Paul says in chapter 1 verse 21, that it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. They were dead and unable to respond. And then God used the instrumental means of preaching to raise them to spiritual life by the power of the Holy Spirit. They were awakened to the reality of their sin and condemnation and then awakened to the finished work of Jesus on the cross for them. That, my dear brothers and sisters, is truly supernatural. That is the power that the Corinthian church had seen when Paul preached. Paul could not cause a person to become spiritually alive. His preaching was not in and of itself powerful like some magic spell that could raise the dead. You and I cannot make a person come alive in Christ by some strength of our own. And yet, God will use you and I preaching his message as the means to raise spiritually dead people. We don't cause them to be saved by intellectualizing them into the kingdom. God does something supernatural when the gospel is preached. Why does God do it like that? Verse 5. 
so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The rock of our conversion is not the person that led us to Christ. No clever intellectual argument is what caused us to trust in Jesus and be saved. I'm sure there were questions you needed answered and that God used all sorts of people and the arguments. But the people that were used in that process, sorry, I'm sure there were questions you needed answered and that God used all sorts of people in that process, but the people and the arguments are not the reason that you are saved. Your faith is not built on them. If you are here and you are a Christian, you are a Christian because you heard preaching of the gospel and you are made alive by God through that preaching. Maybe it was preaching from a pulpit. Maybe it was an evangelist. Maybe it was a friend or a family member. Maybe it was gospel literature. That can be preaching too, right? Maybe you were led to Christ by the preaching of the gospel recorded for us in the scriptures. Your faith rests not on the persuasive words of people, nor on the wisdom of their arguments, but on God who radically transformed you as someone preached to you. Does this mean that the Christian message has no need of intellectual arguments? Of course not. We are commanded to be ready to make a defense. Our faith is intellectually defensible. It's not anti-intellectual faith that is only believed by the foolish and uninformed. There are great many brilliant men and women who embrace this message. But these apologetic answers and intellectual arguments do not in and of themselves convert anybody. No one is a Christian simply because it all made sense. It does make sense, but we are Christians because God opened our eyes in a supernatural act when the gospel was preached to us. Now, I am an evangelist, and we we, we talked about that before. I do preach the gospel regularly. This is what I do. And I know that your pastor has spoken to you many times in recent months about the need to share your faith. And so I trust that you agree that this is necessary. This is commanded in Scripture of us. What does this passage mean for our evangelism? Let's apply this to how we preach the gospel. Knowing that God uses preaching to save sinners through the power of the Holy Spirit should lead us to place our confidence in him, not in ourselves. And yet, our self-confidence can manifest itself in two very different ways. The first is overconfidence. We think that God needs us. Now, this is my ditch to fall into as as, as a regular preacher of the gospel. Although we've been called to preach the gospel, salvation is not dependent on us. No one is going to get to heaven and say that they should be let in because they're a disciple of Andrew Walkington. Andrew Walkington did not pay for anyone's sins. You and I have not caused anyone to be made alive in Christ Jesus. If someone gets to heaven, it's only going to be because the Spirit has made them alive and the Bible is clear that God does this through the preaching of his word. Your words and my words cannot save. 
You might be a smart and a good communicator. You might be well-practiced in sharing your faith. You might be capable of the finest of gospel presentations, but that does not guarantee that someone will be saved. Yes, we should preach the gospel, and yes, we should strive to do it well, but that won't cause someone to be born again. It's not up to you. If you think that you can bring something amazing to the table that God truly needs, let me say this to you in Christian love. Get out of God's way. Leave your ego at the door and repent of your pride. It's not about you. If you want to share your faith so that other Christians will be impressed, don't. If you want to stand up in the marketplace of ideas and have people highly commend your knowledge and wisdom, stop it. God may still use you despite yourself, but God does not share his glory with anyone else and he won't share it with you and he won't share it with me. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He used a talking donkey in the Old Testament. God will, his achieve, God will achieve his work with or without the help of people that try to steal his glory. He doesn't need us. If you want to be used by God, humble yourself and recognize that God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Obedience, gratitude, compassion and worship are the right motives for our evangelism. Pride and self-aggrandizement are not. Jesus died for the sin of pride. Please, my brother or sister, turn from this sin and thank him that he paid for even that sin on Calvary. Repent of this and commit to humbly preaching the gospel. The second is underconfidence. We think God can't use us. Do you worry that you might get asked questions you can't answer? Perhaps this would be better to leave this to the expert evangelist. He'll have all the answers. Right? Our passage today says that people were not saved by being intellectually convinced, but because God made them alive when they heard the preaching of the gospel. So what if you can't answer all the questions about creation, the manuscript history of the New Testament, fulfillment of messianic prophecies, and so on? Can you explain the gospel? Can you graciously tell someone that they are a sinner and that Jesus died to save them? That's what God uses to save people. Not clever arguments, not worldly wisdom. I'm an experienced evangelist with a huge background in apologetics and theology, and yet God can use you just as easily. To suggest that God can't use you because you lack in some way is to assert that God is not as crucial in the process as you are. That you somehow have the ability to thwart God's plan to save people. Really? The God who spoke the universe into existence is limited by you or me? Really? Does that make sense to you? Isn't that actually a prideful overestimate of your own importance to the process? And yet, that is exactly what we are saying when we refuse to engage in evangelism because we think we can't do it well. God can and does use some of the most unassuming evangelists you can ever imagine. I work alongside some of them. To the overconfident, I said, repent and get out of God's way. To the underconfident, I say, repent, 
trust God and obey the commandment to preach the gospel. You may need to do some training or do some more Bible study or just have some practice and get more experienced. Those are good things to do. We are commanded to have an answer for the hope that lies within. We should learn to speak the gospel clearly in a language that the non-Christians around us understand rather than all of our Christian jargon. But don't let laziness or fear stop you from stepping up and glorifying God through evangelism. Let me assure you that just as there is forgiveness at the cross for the sin of overconfidence, there is also forgiveness at the cross for the sin of underconfidence and a lack of obedience in evangelism. God wants to use all of us. Will you let him do that? Will you obey? Will you go to tell the lost? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you are about the saving of sinners. We thank you that sometime in the past, for those of us in this room who are truly born again, you caused us to be saved by the preaching of your gospel. You did this for your own name's sake, your own glory, not ours. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did. That you that you dragged us up from the sin and depravity that we lived in and you caused us to have faith and to trust in you. And now, Lord Jesus, we've heard the command to go. We've heard the command to make disciples. We've heard your word challenge us that it's not about us, but it's all about you and making you known. Would you help us to obey Forgive us, Lord Jesus, for the times when we have allowed ourselves to get in the way of your gospel. Forgive us for the times we've been overconfident, thinking that God needs us. Forgive us for the times that we have been underconfident in God, thinking that somehow you can't work through us. We repent of this sin and we we ask you to cleanse us and strengthen us by your spirit for your service. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that this is a church that is thinking hard about evangelism. I thank you for the the leadership of the the pastor and, and, and the other lay leaders in the church, that they are thinking hard about how they might serve you. Lord, bless them for that. Grow their church. Strengthen them with new converts. Revive the church. Revitalize your people. But do so for your name's sake, not for the sake of this church. And when all is said and done, Lord, we just long to see you and be greeted with well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's happiness. Would you challenge us by your word this morning to grow and change and obey? And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.